before we get to the events of that tragic night on October 5th, 2014, let's go back in time and retrace the steps of Kelly's life. How had this confident, strong-willed woman found herself on a path that had led to a wedding day she wanted no part of? A day meant to bring two people together in a celebration of love, a relationship that would ultimately lead to her untimely demise. A tragedy that shocked the small community of Terre Haute, Indiana. Pat Liturgy, Kelly's mother, takes us back now to the very beginning, to when her precious daughter was born. She provides us with a glimpse into Kelly's childhood and adolescence, all the way up to that fateful night. born in Terre Haute, Indiana at Union Hospital, and I have lived here all of my life except for about a year and a half, and all of my children have been born at Union Hospital in Terre Haute. It's not a real big town. It's not like Indianapolis or Detroit or something like that. I think most of our people are really good people, that they try to keep their property up, they try to keep control of their kids, which isn't always possible, but uh, we have our share of, of the bad things, but I think we have more good. In total, Pat gave birth to six children, five in her first marriage and one in her second. It was in her first marriage that Kelly was born. Kelly had an older sister and brother, a younger sister that was stillborn, and a younger brother. Pat describes Kelly growing up. She was a carefree little girl, loved to go out and play, and as she got older, she just kind of got a little bit rebellious. Pat, Kelly's mother, was very young when she had her first child, and Kelly's father left to serve his country in Vietnam. Kelly's mother found herself doing the best she could to care for her three children while being pregnant and all on her own. She struggled to provide for them, making only $140 a month working part-time. When Kelly was only five years old, her biological father disappeared altogether. Pat was left raising four children all on her own, receiving zero child support because she couldn't locate her husband. Pat finally filed for divorce, and sometime after, she reconnected with a high school sweetheart named Tony. In high school, they both went their separate ways and married other people. However, after both of their marriages ended, they reconnected and began dating. Almost 48 years later, the high school sweethearts are still married today. They even had a son together, raising a total of five children. Pat told us that Tony helped raise and support all of her children, as if they were his own. She remarked that her children didn't necessarily have the most expensive clothing, but always had what they needed. It's unclear whether or not the disappearance of Kelly's father had affected her. She was quite young at the time. Pat stated that at some time, Kelly and a few of her siblings had managed to track down their biological father in 2001. But after meeting him, Kelly decided that she had no desire to ever see him again and he passed away a year later. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, let's go back to when Kelly turned 18. Pat describes this major milestone in Kelly's life. She got married when she was 18 and had a son. And then for some reason, Kelly didn't bond with him. And when they got divorced, the son was awarded to the biological father and she dated this guy, and she stayed with him for like 10 years. And uh, she had a son by him, and she kept him for probably till he was five. And then I don't know what happened, but she ended up giving him to his biological father. Kelly had two sons 
but what seemed unusual was that she willingly awarded custody of both of her sons over to their biological fathers. Pat mentioned that Kelly seemed to have a difficult time bonding with each of the children, but didn't understand or know why. Had Kelly struggled with postpartum depression? Back then, as far as I know, I've never heard of it until I was older. I never heard of postpartum depression. No, I, I imagine a lot of people back then had it, but people didn't know. I had my first baby at 16, and there's no way I could have not bonded with him. I just couldn't understand it. After those marriages ended and she awarded custody of her sons, Kelly didn't seem to waver from the idea that Mr. Wright was still somewhere out there waiting for her. She just hadn't found him yet. She was a romantic and would never give up on love. She knew that there was someone special for her out there, and she would think that this one was it or that one was it, and so far she had not found him. And she, I think she really knew that Samson wasn't the one because she didn't want to marry him, but she was so afraid of him, and he had not done anything physically to her, but mentally, he was just dragging her down. Each time she thought she had found the right guy, and when she died, she still hadn't found the right guy. Kelly seemed to be strong enough to manage her way out of relationships she no longer wanted to be in. That is, it seems, until she met Dr. Scott Sampson. For those closest to Kelly, it had become increasingly difficult to watch her self-esteem deteriorate and to be only bystanders to the abusive relationship she was trapped in. I very much am certain that it was low self-esteem. I mean, when I was around her, you know, she'd be getting ready to go on a date or go somewhere. And I'm telling you, I mean, I, you've seen pictures of her, I'm sure. And this girl drop-dead gorgeous not really any flaws to her. And in all sincerity, she would be asking me, do I look okay? I mean, not because she thought she looked okay and she was looking for affirmation, but because she was genuinely concerned that something was wrong. Months leading up to Kelly and Scott's wedding, Pat and her daughter had a disagreement, and it was over Scott. Pat was frustrated with the inconsistent relationship Kelly had with her fiancé. She didn't think it was healthy and was saddened to see her daughter enduring the emotional and mental abuse that was inflicted on her day after day. Mother and daughter had always been extremely close, and so Pat never had an issue voicing her concerns to her daughter. But for some reason, on one particular occasion, Kelly seemed to take an issue with it and started hiding things about her relationship. Pat knew it and confronted her about it. They stopped speaking after that. She had told me a few weeks before we got into where I wasn't talking to her for three months. And she says, Mom, you're my best friend. She says, and I know that's not right because I tell you things that a daughter should tell a mom. Sadly, the mother-daughter disagreement was never resolved. Pat wasn't present for her daughter's wedding and tragically never saw her again. A heartbreaking reality that no one could have ever predicted. You've now heard some of Kelly's past and about some of the personal struggles she dealt with in her lifetime. For the most part, Kelly had appeared to be a confident woman. She'd been able to get out of relationships she didn't want to be in in the past. So what happened? Had some of these difficult life events left her susceptible to the abusive relationship she found herself trapped in? Had Scott Sampson managed to find some of the weak spots in the fabric of Kelly's being and then slowly started tearing away at them? As you've heard by the testimonies, when they were together, he controlled her. When they weren't together, he hunted her down. Is it possible 
that Kelly felt that she had no other choice but to comply. This had been Kelly's path up until that very tragic day. Kelly's friend Jane gives her account of what happened next. One thing that happened that is probably pertinent is that it had rained a lot. And so it was going to be held at their house outdoors with a tent. However, the ground was wet and muddy and whatever. And so at the last minute, and I want to say it was maybe the night before or something, very, very, very last minute, Kelly talked to Scott and they ended up getting a venue to have the wedding at instead. It was already pre-planned that I was going to go to her house in the early afternoon and just kind of be with her while she was getting ready and stuff. So I did that and hung out with her. And then we went to the venue together. At some point, while Kelly and Jane were hanging out, Kelly revealed some very odd information. I don't remember at what point she told me. I think she may have even told me on the phone the night before, or she definitely told me pretty much the minute I saw her that she was not going to sign the marriage license or the marriage certificate that she was going through with the wedding because she felt like she had to, but that she had no intention of signing the marriage certificate. Jane had got the impression that Kelly had been pressured by Scott into marrying him and that it was to avoid embarrassment. So she talked to the officiant and asked the officiant to give me the certificate so that I could hang on to it and not make sure that Scott didn't get it. Jane then describes to us the very simple yet beautiful wedding ceremony. Her son walked her down the aisle. The ceremony was, you know, brief. It wasn't really anything major. Neither of them had attendance. Her wedding gown was actually kind of simple, but it was really pretty, of course. After the wedding ceremony, she changed into another gown, which was blingy. <laughs> it was, it was her fun. It was her fun one. It had bling all over it. It was really pretty. <laughs> that was that was the one that was more her. She had the reserved one for the actual ceremony, and then the other one for the reception. Unbeknownst to Scott, the marriage would never be legal. The marriage certificate was never signed and was in the possession of Kelly's friend, Jane. Kelly would never legally be Kelly Ecker Sampson, as she was referred to in the media. This was a very important point that Kelly's mother wanted to make sure we made clear. Next. Jane then describes the wedding reception and something she found very peculiar, but something that was more or less typical of Scott. It appeared to Jane that the nurses had been intentionally separated from the doctors and their wives during the cocktail hour. That's the part that was super weird. So if you can envision, you know, a bar, it was like a stand-up bar, no bar stools or anything, but just like a stand-up walk-up bar, I guess you could call it. And that's kind of where the nurses were all congregated just kind of across from the walk-up bar. And then there was like this other area that was separated by pillars. There was a whole like other room essentially, but it was completely separate. It wasn't walled off, but it was definitely separate. Kelly's friends all hung out by the walk-up bar and Scott and his friends were all in this whole completely separate area. It was completely segregated. Jane then talked about what happened at dinner, which again was something she found unusual. So then we had dinner and it was awkward again because then you've got Kelly and Scott sat at an eight or ten top table with Scott's friends and I and another one of Kelly's friends sat with her son at another table. So as soon as Kelly finished eating, like the minute she was finished eating, she stood up and bolted towards where myself and her son were sitting. But she was made to not sit where she would have wanted to be. 
So Kelly wasn't even permitted to have a single friend seated with her at the head table, not even her 10-year-old son. Scott's own parents weren't even seated at the table, only six of his friends. That was just another weird, controlling, dumb thing that happened. You know what I mean? And another way of saying, oh, we're superior, you're lowly. Kelly and I left the venue so that she could get her son home and uh, and get him to bed. I don't recall there being any incident that happened between the two of them. In most of the news articles we found on this story, it was reported that Scott and Kelly fought about their prenuptial agreement at the reception. Others said they fought about a declined credit card. Jane tells us that she had no recollection of the couple arguing about either. Apparently, Kelly wasn't even aware of the declined credit card until later that evening, after she'd already gone home. Everyone was invited to go back to their house afterwards to hang out by the fire pit. I was already planning to go. I mean, like, for a, it had already been arranged for a long time that I was going to sleep at their house um, because I live, like, 45 minutes away. And so she and I are just sitting at the kitchen table. We're just hanging out, talking. And I don't I don't remember how we found out about the credit card issue, honestly. I know that's a big deal, but I don't remember how she found out about it. Because Kelly and I were not at the venue at the time, I'm pretty sure that Kelly found out via text and that I was with her. She and I didn't really realize how upset he was about the credit card issue. And furthermore, I don't know that they spoke a word at the house. It was pretty uncomfortable, frankly. So it was obvious that Scott was angry about something. Perhaps when the wedding was all said and done, he was astonished by where the cancelled tent venue at their home had ended up taking them. Or could it have been something else? Could he have discovered Kelly's intention to never sign the wedding certificate? At the house, when Scott arrived, he and Kelly were barely looking at each other, and I don't recall them speaking words to each other. It was pretty pretty uncomfortable and intense between them. So Kelly and I were at the table the whole time. His friend, Scott's friend, was in the kitchen with us a good amount of the time. And Scott was, like, between the kitchen and the fire pit, kind of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Jane seemed to think that the possibility of Kelly not intending to marry Scott would have been a lot more upsetting to him than a declined credit card. After all, he'd spent the last year and a half refusing to allow Kelly out of his tight grip. Around 1 a.m. in the morning, after all the guests had left, except for Jane, she and Kelly decided to call it a night. Jane headed down to the basement, where a couch had already been made up for her, and Kelly headed upstairs to lay down beside her son for a bit as he fell asleep, something she did every single night. Jane describes what happened next. Next thing I know, um, sorry, this is the point where it's always hard to talk about it. Around one in the morning, I woke up to Scott standing over me, screaming. Get the F out of my house. Naturally, I was very startled. Honestly, I was terrified. So I didn't get up right away, and he started yelling at me again. I don't remember what he said the second time, but he was basically telling me to go now, and I, I said, um, I need to get my pants on. He 
went upstairs and I I got dressed. But before I went upstairs, I sent a text to Kelly asking her what the heck is going on or I don't even know what the text said. Within probably a minute and a half, I walked up the stairs. At the top of the stairs was essentially a mud room um, with benches. It, it was open, but it had benches on both sides of the of the wall. It's basically like where the garage comes into the house. Um, benches on both sides of the wall, and then it goes into the kitchen. Kelly was sitting on one of those benches, and I have never seen anyone look more terrified in my whole life. She was completely pale. And believe me, on someone's wedding day, clearly you don't see somebody looking pale. And Kelly always had a nice tan anyway. She was ghost white and and just terrified. And I, you know, looked at her and tried to figure out what was going on. And I don't know if I mouthed something to her. I, I really don't remember. I, I know I tried to figure out between us, but I didn't get anything out of her. I did ask her to go with me, and she she said no. Scott was standing behind the island bar, but when I asked her to leave, he said something. He mouthed something off. You know, he was being smart, and it was something like about her going going on honeymoon alone or something that made me think about the future, I guess. A future that did not involve the two of them. Basically, it said to me, they're not going to be together, but it didn't say to me, oh, she's going to die. I knew in my heart, I mean, clearly, I, I knew that she would not leave without her son. I, I couldn't go without trying to get her to go and not that I would want her to leave without her son, but I had to see if I could get her and him out of there, you know? I had to at least try. She said no, and I asked a second time, and she said no again. So I left. I mean, I didn't feel good, but I didn't really have that impending doom feeling, you know? Like, I didn't know that I should have called 911 when I left. I wish I had. Only minutes later. 911, what's address of emergency? Please, please, please. Hello? Hello? This is 911. Hello? What's your address? I can't hear you. 4205 Creel. 4205 Creel Street. 911, that is your emergency. Help me, 4205 North Creel, please. What's the address? 4205 North Creel. Okay, what's going on there? Who is? My husband. What's his name? Scott Johnson. dispatchers. Scott had blown off the door handle of Kelly's son's room where she lay with her 10-year-old boy. Twice, she gave the wrong address to the household 
no doubtably completely terrified, confused, and in horror for what was about to happen. Emergency dispatchers could not trace her call because of a setting her phone was placed on. Upon Scott entering her son's room, Kelly scrambled away from her son's bed over to the wall, where you then hear on the 911 call, Scott firing at Kelly. Police arrived 15 minutes after the frantic 911 calls were made, but they were too late. They found Kelly's lifeless, bloody body and her son hiding beneath his blankets in his bedroom, only feet away from his mother. They also found Scott's elderly parents. Scott was nowhere to be found. At around 2 a.m. in the morning, Pat, Kelly's mother, hears the most devastating news of her life. About 2.30, I got a call, and when you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. And he says, Pat Liturgy? And I says, yes. And he says, can I come and talk to you? And I says, yes. And I says, how long will it be? He says, I'm sitting in front of your house. So I got my robe on and I went downstairs and he sat down and he asked me if I had daughters. And I says, yes, I had two, two daughters. And he says, well, Kelly is deceased. I mean, I just, I kind of fell over onto my husband. Then I think I was in shock and I just sit back up. But I don't think there could have been anybody better to come and tell me something like that. I mean, he stayed probably an hour with us, talking to us. And he says she didn't suffer, but he shot her six times. Two in the head and four in the body. describes the type of bullet that Samson chose to kill her daughter with versus the ones he chose to end his own life. Kelly, he used a 40 millimeter gun that had black talon bullets. And those, they go in and they turn in circles and they do more damage than just a regular bullet going through the flesh. And that was a 40 millimeter gun. But then when he went to kill himself, he just got a 45 caliber gun. And I still to this day don't know whether he shot himself in the side of the head like the temple or whether he went through his mouth. I still don't know that. So I, I guess it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm glad that he was dead. After hearing about the arsenal of weapons, a SWAT team arrived at 4205 Creel Street. And all the police officers vacated the home in fear that Scott was possibly arming himself for a full attack. Hours and hours went by. After Scott had retreated to the basement, and the SWAT team waited to see if he would emerge. Around 6 a.m. in the morning, the team sent in a robot, and Scott was discovered dead with a single gunshot wound to his head. When we asked Pat if Scott's parents had heard the commotion, she said they had come out of their room after they heard gunshots being fired. It was at that point that Scott's father was reported seeing him coming out of Kelly's son's room. And was heading downstairs. Scott ran between the guest room and the bathroom. And after he had shot Kelly, he went through the bathroom and out his guest room door where his parents were. 
And his dad went after him and says, Scott, stop, stop. And, and Scott kept saying, it's too late. It's too late. He knew Kelly was going to be dead. And he'd better kill himself because there was no way out for him. He'd ruined his life. Kelly's 10-year-old son, who had been witness to his mother's gruesome murder, hadn't completely understood everything that had just happened. Pat recalls needing to help him grasp that his mother wasn't coming back. All the way home from the sheriff's office, he kept saying, I hope my mommy's all right. I hope my mommy's all right. So I told him, I said, your mommy is gone. He says, do you mean she's dead? I says, yes, she is. And he gave a couple of little sobs. As far as Jane knew, the situation had been heated between the couple before she left their home at 1 a.m., but no one could have ever prepared her for the call she was about to receive hours later. A friend of Kelly's called me at about 5 in the morning and told me that Kelly was dead. And I told her that that wasn't true. I really didn't believe it. I, I was certain that that was not true. And it really wasn't until about 6.30, I started hearing more and more that I actually believed that she was gone. She told me that Scott had shot Kelly and that he was hiding in the basement or something like that. He hadn't shot himself yet. When more and more information came out, because she just kept, kind of kept me in the loop as more and more information came out, that I actually came to terms with the fact that it was real. was murdered, her family held a memorial service on October 11th at Cross Lane Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. The family had even hired security for the memorial service in order to keep the media at bay. Approximately 150 people attended, a mix of friends, colleagues, and patients. The ICU nurses working that day each took turns covering each other's shifts so that everyone had an opportunity to pay their respects. the warmth she felt seeing all the nurses arriving in their navy blue scrubs. She always thought Kelly looked so pretty in her scrubs, but then again, she always looked pretty, Pat said. Money donated by attendees was given to the organization called CODA, Council on Domestic Abuse, an organization the Pat Liturgy has now become an active supporter of. The family had Kelly's body cremated and had a private burial service. Kelly's ashes were buried directly behind her infant sister, Lori Dawn, who was stillborn on July 10, 1965. 
What's heartbreaking is that Pat wasn't able to see her daughter before she was cremated. When they arrived at the funeral home, Tony, Kelly's stepfather, went ahead of Pat to say goodbye one last time. When he came back out, he said this to Pat. Then my husband wanted to see her, and I didn't think I could do it. And so I told him, and he'd come back, and he says, you can't see her. He says you wouldn't even recognize her. Pat recalls when she finally received some of Kelly's personal belongings after the murder and how the nightmare didn't end for her. And we didn't get the cell phone back for a couple months after we got the purse back. And uh, I looked, I just opened the sack that they'd given me. They gave it in a stapled sack. And as soon as I opened it, I closed it back up and I said, I can't look at this. Because she had like a jeweled case for it to be in with all different colors. Not a fancy one, but I, I mean... Not an expensive one, but a fancy one. And uh, there was blood just just covering that whole phone. So what really had caused Scott to snap? Both Jane and Pat had some possible theories. I have to wonder if he didn't maybe figure out about her intention to not find the marriage certificate. Maybe they got in a fight and she told him, or maybe he saw it in her room unsigned. Maybe he saw the officiant and she said, oh, by the way, I gave that to Kelly's friend. But somehow something tipped him off to the fact that he was not going to have her. That's my belief. I think Scott killed Kelly because he knew that he really didn't have her. He knew he wasn't going to have her. He knew he couldn't keep her. I don't know what happened that night to make him know that. I know people are speculating it was over that bar tab, but I really don't think it was that. That was not as big a thing to him as Kelly was. Possessing her was everything to him. And when he thought he was losing or had lost that, I think tipped him over the edge. What made him figure that out? I'm not sure. If he couldn't have her, nobody was going to have her. Because everybody says, was he that good looking or had that good a personality? Or I don't see what Kelly ever saw in him. He's not the kind of person that she would normally date. We'll never, ever know the true reason why this happened. The only thing I can figure out is Samson said this was his last chance at a girl that looks like Kelly being on his arm. And if he wasn't going to have it, then nobody was. Jane believes that the reason Kelly looked so pale as she walked up those stairs to leave that morning was because of something Scott might have been threatening her with. I'm very certain he had a gun behind that bar. <laughs> There's no way she was as fearful as she was if he didn't already have that gun. And he'd probably already told her, I'll kill her if you try to leave with her. So there's no way. She saved my life by not going with me, and I know that. I know that she did that for me. I do want to say, though, that I believe firmly that Kelly saved my life by not going with me that night, and she knew it. He would never have let me take her. My kids wouldn't have a mom today had she tried to leave with me. I'm very certain of that. When asked if she would have been more fearful, having known that Scott had firearms in the house, she replied, I was surprised to learn of his tremendous arsenal. I, I didn't have any idea that I was sleeping next to that that night. I may have been more fearful about leaving Kelly had I known about the weapons. However, I'll be honest with you, I tended and probably still tend to be naive and be optimistic and think the best in people, even him. I probably wouldn't have fought him to have homicidal tendencies. And I, I'm still surprised by that, honestly, because I still, looking back, can't see where I missed that. 
I mean, I, I look, I look back and I'm like, how did I not see that he was a killer? And I don't know. As much as Scott was disliked by those closest to Kelly, no one could have ever foreseen the tragedy that was about to erupt that night. So, for the record, I never liked him. I never liked Scott. I thought he was a jerk from the get-go. I thought he was arrogant. And I never felt like he was good enough for her. But I never imagined that she was ever in physical danger with him. Let alone that night, I never imagined that he would kill her. When Jane was asked how she's coped after having lost one of her closest friends, who was not only murdered, but so brutally and only minutes after she last saw her, she replied, I've probably gone through all of the stages of grief, which incorporates every emotion. Initially, it was most definitely disbelief. I think one of my pretty early reactions, I felt felt guilt. I don't like him. I've never liked him. So I'm sure that anger was a part of that. However, I can't hold on to that because that just, that would only hurt me. and friends of murdered victims, the thought of retelling a story like this brings the fear of reopening old wounds and unleashing painful memories that have taken years and years to only somewhat heal. It is understandable why so many wouldn't want to endure the horror of those events ever again by recounting them especially to the public. There's also the potential of opening themselves up to criticism or judgment. And why would anyone want to put themselves through that? After all, they've already gone through so much. So why do some family members and friends of victims choose to step out and be heard? It's different for everyone. But for Pat and Kelly's friend Jane, the reason was the same. Because it was an important story that needed to be told. And if they can prevent it from happening to anyone else, then it will have been worth it for them. If we even reach one person who is in the same predicament that Kelly was in, that keeps thinking they'll change, they'll change. No, get help now because they could be the next obituary. And in Kelly's obituary, I put that in there. Because if CODA needs to be more well-known, they need to get out there more and people know what they can do for them. Because people just think, you know, they, they don't have any place to go. But Kelly knew she could come here anytime, but she didn't want to involve us in it. I would say, be it either a man or a woman, if you're in this type of a situation, either call 911 or get a hold of the Council on Domestic Abuse, CODA. They can help you. If I would have known more about them, maybe, I I don't know, but maybe I could have got Kelly help. I've actually been in a domestic violence situation, and that was why I could not, even though I wanted to, I couldn't give up on Kelly because I needed people to not give up on me. So I'm hoping that if you are someone that's in a domestic violence situation, even if it's not physical, even if it's emotional as I believe that Kelly's mostly was emotional, controlling, that sort of thing. You need to know that you're good enough. You're good enough that you can get out of it. However, you need to make sure that you do it in a safe manner. There are resources available for you. And one tip I will give you that helped me is do it when things are good. Don't try to leave when things are bad. I left when things were good. Because if you're in the situation, you know that if things are good right now, they'll be bad again. So leave when things are good because you can. When things are bad, they're on hyper alert and you can't leave then. Finally, one other unfortunate thing that can happen in these types of dramatic events 
is that the victim is remembered by the event and not for all the wonderful qualities their loved ones held dear. We asked Pat and Jane how they remembered Kelly and how they would like others to remember her as well. Anybody that met her loved her. Everybody that met her felt like they were her best friend and that is truthful. You could talk to probably, I could probably name five people off the top of my head that would tell you they're Kelly's best friend. And it didn't matter, you know, what she thought. They honestly felt like they were her best friend. And you know why? Because she made people feel that good. And she made patients feel cared for and taken care of. She made patients' families feel like their family member was in the best hands. She was very generous. A caring, loving person and a wonderful mother to her son and as a wonderful nurse. did a search for an obituary for Dr. George Scott Sampson, but came up empty-handed. We did find a toxicology report on him that showed his blood alcohol level was well above the legal limit and was at 0.143. The report also showed the presence of prescribed medications, but at a normal therapeutic level. The report didn't indicate specifically what those medications were, but there are some prescribed drugs that do specifically warn patients against combining alcohol with their use because of the adverse side effects, including mental impairment. It is also important to remember that in the wake of this devastating tragedy, Scott Sampson left behind three children and a legacy that is undoubtedly impacted them significantly. If those closest to Kelly had not suspected Scott of being capable of murder and suicide, it's highly probable that his children had not either. It's a tragedy that's had an enormous ripple effect on many different people and will forever be remembered by the community of Terre Haute, Indiana. If you're someone that feels trapped in an abusive relationship, there are resources and people available and ready to help you. If you're in Indiana, you can call CODA's 24-hour hotline number at 1-800-566-2632. Nationwide, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. CODA, Council on Domestic Abuse, is an organization that Pat has become heavily involved in since her daughter's death. According to an annual report produced by the Violence Policy Center, which uses Bureau of Justice statistics, nearly three women are murdered every single day in the U.S. by either a current or former romantic partner. In our Facebook discussion group, one of our members Christine Croft asked Pat, how does she celebrate Kelly's life? 
Pat responded, We keep flowers on our grave at all times. For Mother's Day, I put all purple flowers on her grave. That was her favorite color. The first Monday in October is Coda Recognition Day. A group of us form at City Hall. The relatives are given purple balloons, and as they call each victim's name, the family releases the balloons. It is wonderful to see all these family members and friends remembering their loved ones. We are so grateful to Kelly's mother, Pat, and Kelly's friend, Jane, for trusting us to tell Kelly's story. For opening themselves up in order to hopefully help other women and men that might find themselves in an abusive relationship they feel they can't escape. I would also like to mention to keep an eye out for a documentary that will possibly be coming out in 2018, and it will also tell the story of Kelly Ann Arnie Ecker. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E